Welcome to the very first episode of the Energy Environment Economy Podcast, a production of the Environmental Business Council of New England. I'm Ann Geisinger, Executive Director at ABC, and your co-host for this episode. Here at Energy Environment Economy, we aim to explore topics across the energy and environmental industries. At ABC, we hear from thought leaders at our webinars and events, and this podcast will bring those leaders and others to a wider audience for deeper dives, career conversations, research highlights, and for today's very first episode, a conversation highlighting one of ABC's recent EB Award winners. You can check out the link in the show notes for more information about all of the EB Award winners. I do have a co-host for today. So Ed Ayanata is a Senior Vice President with Tetratech. He's an EBC board member. He's also an F1 racing enthusiast. He also does a lot of following of the track and field uh, college results from his children participating. So hello, Ed. It's a pleasure to be here. So Ed managed environmental review, permitting, and construction compliance for two of the biggest uh, public infrastructure projects we've seen. So the $15 billion Central Artery Tunnel, and that's in Boston, and then the $3.5 billion Deer Island Wastewater Treatment Plant outfall. So he's really got the background to help really get inside information here on our award winner for today. So let's find out who that is. So it's Boston University's brand new Center for Computing and Data Sciences, which is Boston's largest fossil fuel-free building. It's got a geothermal closed-loop system, an array of energy efficiency features, green roofs, climate resiliency features. It really is on the leading edge of sustainable design, and it's proving out that buildings can be built with climate and energy in mind successfully. So congratulations to the full project team. I know there were a lot of companies and people involved in this project. It takes a lot to pull one of these together, so congratulations to the full team on their win, receiving the EBC Ruth Stillman Award for Climate Change Project of the Year at last week's EB Awards event in Boston. It was on June 8th. So congratulations, applause for everyone uh, on the team. It's a great project. So I'll have our, our project folks from BU uh, talk about the project today. I've got two of them with me. So uh, Dennis, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Thanks. Uh, I'm Dennis Carlberg, uh, Associate Vice President for Sustainability here at Boston University. My role in this project, I uh, was really developing the Climate Action Plan, which laid out the the need and an understanding of a timeline that we needed to be acting upon. So just as quick background on that, uh, the Climate Action Plan has set a goal for us to be carbon neutral for our operations by 2040, uh, as well as acting on indirect emissions, ad addressing uh, the impacts from climate change that can no longer be avoided, and then obviously addressing our educational and research mission. Uh, but I think as it relates to the building, most importantly, it, it's really getting uh, to carbon neutral and fossil fuel free. That's great. Thanks, Seth. And we also have Walt here with us. Walt, go ahead and introduce yourself. Uh, yes, my name is Walt Meisner, and I'm the Associate Vice President for Operations. And my role on this project was uh, the project executive or representing the owner. What that simply meant is I was the one who uh, sort of pulled the team together and uh, coordinated the users and the programming of the building with the architects and with the construction manager and the permitting process and all of that. So we started this project back in 2012 and or 2011, 2012, and been been connected it with it ever since. That is no small feat. <laughs> yes. All right. So let's get into it. Ed, I think you had a really great first question to kick us off. So you want to go ahead and, and talk about? Sure. Thanks, Ed. Um, every, every innovative, significant project has a, uh, a defining moment, a defining concept. And I'm interested to, to understand how the university went from obviously identifying a need for a data science and computing center and evolving into 
this forward-looking building uh, that's that's now standing there and and in operation. Uh, certainly, uh, it's a lot more than just fulfilling the need for a building. Shall I, uh, Dennis, begin? Yeah, I think that would make sense. <laughs> it was back in 2012, 2011, 2012 that the, that the university made a, a a very distinctive and decision, and that was to make um, data sciences. We felt we were in the, the you know a great place to make it the a um, a a program of distinction of the university, and basically with the world being more interconnected and data-driven than ever before, there just was this rapidly increasing demand from the students for relevant courses and majors. And with the emergence of AI and machine learning, as well as the use of data to boost research across all disciplines, they felt that data sciences was really the wave of the future. And Boston University was well-positioned to be one of the best in the world. We're in the right city. We had a, a very strong faculty, and um, we felt that we were all p- well positioned to be a leader in that. And at that time, and still, data scientists is ranked, you know, one of the hottest uh, job market. You know, it's been the top in the U.S. for four straight years now, I think, or five or six straight years now since since we began um, in the in the last five years. But data sciences uh, uh, expects to have eleven. 0.5 million new jobs uh, opening in 2006 or uh, 2026. So we just felt we were in a, this was something that BU could put itself ahead of everybody else. We obviously are in Boston with some competitive institutions across the river with Harvard and MIT. And this was um, this was a program that we could be distinctive in. But what evolved out of that was we had a math and statistics department, a computer science department that are obviously extremely large departments that the university, that every student at the university ends up taking one of those courses. We had the Harari Institute, which is a, you know, a a think tank for uh, data sciences, and we've had bad facilities for them. So we felt we needed to make a real strong, visceral um, location for the bill, uh, for the program. And, um, and that's where the idea of we wanted a very distinctive building for a distinctive program came in. And it was back then that we did something that we as a university had never done before. We had a competition or never done before, as far as I know, in my lifetime. We decided to have a competition uh, because we wanted something that wasn't just a regular institutional building, but something that would be uh, an iconic uh, landmark for the institution at in a very prominent site. Virtually 60%, I believe, or 65% of all courses are taught within a five-minute walk of this piece of property that's in the middle of our campus. It was a parking lot. Previously on that parking lot was a Burger King. So it was uh, in it, it was smack dab in the middle across from an 1,800-bed dormitory, Warren Towers. That's, that's a real loss for those students, that Burger King. <laughs> yeah. I, I suppose so. We A lot of alum come back to the institution often, uh, remember or uh, reminisce about their time at Burger King. <laughs> but, um, but the bottom line is, is we... Um, had a location and we had a program and we wanted to make a real statement with that program and we had a competition and we ultimately selected kpmb architects to be the architects there i think so you could have 
certainly built an efficient building or built a um, a lead certified building but uh, where did where did the process begin where where did the idea come up with come come from to be so cutting edge and and zero car essentially zero have a zero carbon building which is a significant leap well interestingly but, enough that didn't come right away we had a design and um that was one in the competition and there's a long story about that that i won't bore you with here but and and, and so we had this iconic design that we felt was going to be special here but then in 20 uh, september of 2014 we uh, ended up putting the project on hold and when we put the project on hold it was because we had some uh, we had a funding issue as well as we had a change in priorities for a short period of time where we built another building that uh, in order to keep some neuroscientists and some synthetic biologists uh, happy. And uh, so the project was put on hold from 2014 to 2018. But in 2017 is when the university, uh, with Dennis's leadership, Put, uh, approved its climate action plan. And it was at that point that the building became uh, that we realized that we could not achieve our climate action plan unless we had an extremely cutting edge building. So, Dennis, take it away. Okay. Thank you, Walt. Good warm up there. Um, the, the climate action plan was really beautifully timed. Uh, we This building was being designed, as Walt said, uh, before the climate action plan was even an idea uh, by the trustees. And we you know, it was a very good team. It's an excellent team throughout. And they they initially proposed uh, ground source heat pumps and you know said that we could we could achieve this. We have the team to pull this together. And that was not a priority uh, before the climate action plan. So the, the climate action plan took us about a year to to put together 2016 and 2017. In December of 2017, the board of trustees approved what we claimed or what we uh, coined as BU Bold. We gave them three options, BU Good, BU Better, and BU Bold. Um, frankly, we really mostly talked about BU Bold, and that was what was approved. And that was to get to zero net direct, zero uh, direct emissions uh, net for our operations by 2040, 10 years ahead of the city's goal, by the way. And that was attractive to President Brown uh, because, as he says, we need to beat the city, but not because we're competitive, but because if we don't beat the city and others along with us, the city won't be able to meet its goal to be carbon neutral by 2050. So I, I think this this is much bigger than BU, and I think that I think that's how we all think about this. Is this is much much bigger than BU because if we can show that we can do fossil fuel free, carbon neutral in an urban setting. At this kind of scale, 345,000 square feet, others can do it too. And that adds a lot of value and helps others do the same thing. So um, the moment that I, for me, the key moment uh, was when the team was reassembled in February of 2018, after the Climate Action Plan was approved and asked to do not just a carbon neutral building, but a fossil fuel free building. And um, as an architect practicing 25 years before starting the sustainability program here, trying to push these issues forward, having senior leadership starting to really push and and embrace the climate action plan in such a key way, 
uh, has has been just a real amazing moment for me professionally. It's a great, um, it's a great segue to one of my other questions, which you sort of answered, Dennis. Uh, you know, it, most of the EBC members are consultants of one type or another. A few of our members are utilities or or companies that provide services. And a big issue for all of us in the consulting world is what's the scope of the project? And usually a client arrives and says, we need a facility that does X, Y, or Z. And there's a whole range of how you can provide those needs. But it sounds like having the climate action plan drive the scope and define the scope uh, really set the tone to to get the result that you wanted from your from your team and who responded with you know phenomenal uh, innovation and uh, an integration in the building. Oh yeah, I absolutely agree. As a as a practicing professional, um, had if I had been in the room when any one of my clients would have given given me that kind of direction, I would have um, been absolutely thrilled. And obviously, the program is what drives the project. Uh, but when you have a team that you, that has been assembled, that has the skill set to do the work that you're ask, asking them to do, and to do it in a really thorough way and help us. So, you know, obviously, well, we have done another geothermal building on campus about 10 years or 15 years ago. 12, anyway, 10 to 15 years ago. And, uh, you know, that worked. Uh, it's a much smaller building. So we had a sense that it's not this mysterious thing. Um, but because this was such a large undertaking and a serious commitment to do geothermal, so just a little con a little scope of the geothermal, there, it's a ground source heat pump. Geothermal's not really the right term, but that's what we all use in the industry these days. It's a ground source heat pump with 1,500 foot deep boreholes. That's twice as deep as the John Hancock building is high. That, uh, those, and there are 31 of those bores. So that was a pretty major undertaking and we needed to get comfortable with that. And one of the things that Walt did is he assembled our um, operations team, myself, uh, the planning team, uh, and a few others, the construction, to go look at some projects of scale with geothermal. So we went to uh, Chicago and Toronto to look at a couple buildings that KPMB Architects had done and talked with the operators and got comfortable with the way they're actually operating and knowing that they were successful. Uh, we felt that we could be successful. Um, so that's the point at which we really got the green light. And uh, I think another important piece of this for us was schedule and uh, and the technology that needed to be used. So we were budgeting two weeks per bore. There are 31 bores. That's more than a year of drilling. So we we started with three three seven, three different contractors doing three different technologies doing uh, test wells, and we looked at verticality. We looked at the time it took them to to do the drilling. What issues came up doing? There's a lot of dewatering issues. Um, and also the thermal capacity to help us understand how many bores we really needed to do. And with those three, we chose the uh, contractor who we felt was most capable of doing it and meeting our criteria, um, who partnered with one of the other two um, for this project. And we were able to do it a little faster than that. And we were able to do it all before the project was ready to start construction. So we did that at risk uh, as we're going through the permitting process and while the construction documents were being finalized. So did any of your consultants say, uh, hey, Dennis, you know what you're getting into here? 
you're going down this path, this is a pretty this is a pretty uh, ambitious ambitious route. Um, no, I think the all the consultants are professionals. They have experience doing this. They know what they're doing. There was a lot of excitement. I mean, I think the fact that we were doing something cutting edge, you know, up the concentration level of our consultants uh, and their focus. Um, this was truly something they hadn't done before. We we went, for example, out to see the Kellogg School at Northwestern. KPMB had designed that building, and that's a geothermal uh, as well. But the Kellogg School has a big athletic field right next to it. We had an alley. They had a huge field that they could put all of their geothermal boreholes in, and they didn't have to go near as deep. We had a huge building, and we were fortunate we pretty much owned most of the property and the block around us. So we were able to put the... in. You know, only each well borehole was probably about 50 feet apart. We were able to put 27 of them in the alley behind and four of them uh, underneath the podium of the building. And so, and that's why we went 1,500 feet deep. We had to go deeper in order to get better productivity out of each borehole. But to go back to your core question, everybody was so excited about doing something that was going to be uh, cutting edge. And, you know, it wasn't a fait accompli, even though we knew we had to have an efficient building to do it. We had to put the numbers to the uh, this project before it ultimately was. I mean, also, too, we were, the architects were also making the building a little bit bigger because we didn't want to leave any FAR on the table. We liked the design. We asked the architects, how big can this design be? Um, be in order to work, and it ended up, you know, obviously that's controlled by how large your your core of your building is, how many elevators you have going so high. So we had to cap it at, you know, 19 floors. So it got a little bit bigger. And meanwhile, you know, we, you know, did the uh, cost-benefit analysis of, of d doing geothermal and being able to do this as a, um, um, you know, cost-benefit analysis of doing it uh, um, in, in a geothermal, um, with geothermal. Well, it's it's certainly a, a great day in the consulting world when you have a client that says, let's do something cutting edge. Let's, um, let's be innovative. Uh, let's use all of your skills. And um, here we go. And, you know, that's, that's sort of the, uh, those become the career defining projects, which, um, which, which keep people interested in consulting from our, our member side. And, and quite frankly, and much of what we do is pretty routine. It, oh, quite frankly, it helped us on the permitting side too, because oh, yeah. Boston, yeah. Boston got excited about it. I mean, it's it's probably no secret to everybody. This the design of this building wasn't everybody's cup of tea, and particularly when we went to the you know Boston Design Commission, you know there were some architects on that the, the commission that weren't as uh, excited about this design as others were. But um, the city was so excited about the fact that we were doing something that was fossil fuel free and cutting edge like this, they were happy BU was taking that risk and going forth. And like, you know, like uh, Dennis said, we did, you know, the initial drilling of the wells, we did at risk uh, before the pandemic started. You you realize that with the depth of your of your bores, you've um, you've changed the thinking in a lot of other projects because I've had the um, I've had the good fortune, I guess, of working on a a few deep rock tunnels, uh -huh. and usually, if you're you're clipping along with a water or a wastewater tunnel at five or six hundred feet below ground, you may take a look around for the occasional deep municipal well, 
But um, you know, one, once you get inside Route 128, you don't tend to find too many deep holes in the ground. And uh, now there's some 1,500 footers. Well, I think the geothermal aspect is, or what, what did you say it was? Not geothermal, but ground. Ground source heat pump. Ground source heat pump. I think it's really fascinating. And I think that this idea that there's these 1,500 foot holes in the ground underneath these, this gigantic building that was built on this little tiny lot with no other space around it. It's just yeah. an incredible feat. So congratulations on achieving all of that. Getting away from the that a little bit, but talking a little bit more about some of the other aspects of the building that make it a really efficient building. And and also, I would like to touch on that very interesting um, uh, display in the foyer that shows you what's going on. Can Dennis talk about a that a little bit? Uh, yeah, I could talk about it for, for days. Um, so the, let's start with with some of the other aspects of sustainability, and we'll get to this the sustainability wall in a minute. The we couldn't do any of this without an efficient building. So had we designed this building to meet what I call very energy efficient energy code and the Massachusetts Energy Code, it still produced 1.4 million kilograms of CO2 equivalent annually by reducing the energy consumption by about 30 percent through. Uh, we have external shading to keep the sun's heat out in the summer. We have triple glazing to keep the heat in in the winter. We have very efficient systems, mechanical systems throughout the building. That reduces the energy consumption by about 30%. That means we have smaller equipment. And let me let me point to that for a second, because when you have a very efficient building envelope and have a very efficient systems, and you separate the thermal energy con moving through the building into water and not air, um, because air is not a very efficient, there's no thermal mass to air. There is a lot of thermal mass to water, so its ability to conduct that thermal energy through the building is much, much more efficient. So by having air and water separated, um, so thermal energy conducted by water and air, much smaller volumes of air um, in the building, easier to move around, less energy required, Fresh air is delivered to all the all the spaces, um, and I could go go down that path a long way. But uh, essentially, what I'm trying to get to is the fact that we made very energy efficient systems, and we used a ground source heat pump. We actually have one more usable floor in the building um, that would have otherwise been mechanical space. So that is an important thing to keep in mind when you're looking at the economics of this, as well as you know how you can really take advantage of, of what you're doing. And that yeah, was something that we learned, learned through our through the design process. Um, so that was that was a big moment, I think, for us too. Um, we do we do have eight green roofs on the building. Uh, so you know ha helping to and they're they're actually quite beautiful. They're in bloom right now. Um, they you know in addition to providing positive outdoor spaces on seven of of the floors within the building. So the building is really organized as a series of neighborhoods for the different departments. So each neighborhood has its own outdoor space. Um, and then you have all the benefits of reducing urban heat island effects, stormwater capture, and so on. And you know we. We're also capturing stormwater for irrigation. We have a 20,000-gallon storage tank that picks up the excess water off the roof and so on. Um, but I think to get to the, the sort of end piece of what you were asking is that sustainability wall. We have a sustainability wall on the first floor of the building. It's an interactive wall. Um, it's an LED touchscreen. Uh, it's 6 foot 8 by 12 feet wide. Um, 
And it's our favorite place to start tours because it gives us an opportunity to give context to what we'll be showing people when we go into mechanical rooms and other spaces in the building. Um, it has, there are 15 different areas that you can, at different points, you can uh, touch on the screen to describe many of the things I just walked through, walked through just now from the geothermal and the external shading and uh, fresh air and dedicated outside air system and, and so on. But the cool thing, I mean, I think that's all cool. It's an interactive thing and it's a 3D model of the building. You can spin around and check out different aspects. Um, but we're collecting data. We have about 450 points of data we're collecting in the building. We don't yet have it all um, mapped yet to that screen, but hopefully by the end of the summer, we'll have that. Our goal is to have it before our students are back in the fall. Many, many, much of that data is from our waste bins. We're collecting. So I, I do want to talk a moment about true zero waste certification. We're attempting and heavy emphasis on attempting because it's not easy. True zero waste certification. True is like LEED. It's, it's, it's administered by the U.S. Green Building Council. Um, and in order to achieve certification, we need to divert at least 90% of the waste from the building from landfill or incineration. So this is, we have a tall order and the behind, yeah. behind the, you know, back of house stuff is, is easy and we're already there, but it's the behavioral change. It's what people are doing on different floors. So we've gotten rid of desk side waste bins and recycle bins. There are sorting stations, several of them on each floor. They're all the same with food waste, trash, and recycling. And we have sensors in all of those bins. So we, in real time, we can tell where we have issues and where we don't. Um, so we can work with our community in the building to help us meet our zero waste goal for the building. And we're gonna start collecting data in October. It take, takes one year of data to, to get certified. Um, so we're working on building that infrastructure for that now. But we feel if UC Berkeley can do it in a building, Boston University can do it in a building. And and UC Berkeley's very interested to see how we do because they're starting construction on their Center for Computing and Data Science. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so uh, we, you know, I think it should be said that we don't do this in any kind of isolation whatsoever, right? We're all in this together. We all collaborate every opportunity we have. And I think it's with that that spirit that we're able to get this done. That's really cool. I think the the solid waste piece is really interesting. I'll, I'll be really interested to see how people's education about getting rid of their waste goes as you go through the year. I think that's a real challenge. The user needs to know more than your average person on what constitutes waste and where to put things. So that'll be fascinating. Speaking a little bit to that piece with East Berkeley, are are you guys all working together? That's great. I I, I would hope oh, that absolutely that conversation. Absolutely, we um, the Association for the Advancement of Sustainability in Higher Education is an important organization that we all uh, engage in, and we all learn from one another. It's really cool to see what other people are doing. We're all trying to solve the same problems. And if we can learn from one another, and I'll tell you that it's the lessons I've learned at Aishi that have led us to our large wind farm. We have a wind farm now, matches 100% of our electricity. That was another thing that came out of the climate action plan. Mm -hmm. um, and that idea came when I attended a session at, at the Aishi conference and then brought that back to the Green Ribbon Commission. And in 2015, we we uh, started a collaborative network within the Boston Green Ribbon Commission uh, to help us all learn 
how to do large-scale renewables, uh, which led to the Renewable Energy Prize, which we didn't win, <laughs> but we tried. Um, and you know, two years later, we were able to get get something big done. But but during that competition, we weren't weren't able to to get there. That's great. So Ed, I think you had a question about sort of the ongoing operations of a building of this caliber. Yeah, obviously this is a, a pretty complicated building to operate and maintain. How how are you approaching that? And you know, a word about commissioning too, if you would. I know that one of the big issues with with any major building is getting it up and running initially. Well, particularly one thing you learn real quickly about a geothermal building, uh, or that uses that to. Um, generate its uh, for its power. Um, you don't the um, it, it takes a full year for you to um, to commission it because you have to go through the seasons. You, we don't have a fully charged building, and yet it's working quite remarkably well in its first year when we didn't have the benefit of having had the build the ground charged appropriately going into the winter. So uh, we won't have this building commissioned until well into the fall and the winter of next year. In terms of our, it's, it is learning. Like Dennis pointed out, we did have uh, some experience with a geo, a small geothermal building up the street from us from a project that was 12, 15 years ago. But um, we've had to bring in some new folks, and there's been a lot of training, uh, retraining of a, a lot of the university's uh, facilities uh, team. But they've been with us all along. They've been involved from uh, ground zero, and uh, uh, there's a close working relationship with uh, uh, BR Plus A, which was our MEP consultant on the project, um, as, uh, as we've brought each of the systems up online. Um, and we're still balancing a lot of the rooms um, and, and, and having some challenges in that. But so far, so good. Uh, we had that cold snap back in February, and the geothermal covers 90% uh, of our heating and cooling. We use electric boilers and electric chillers to do the 10%, the last 10%. And of the six boilers when we were at that minus 17 degrees that hit us during that moment in, I think it was February 4th or so. We only had four of the six electric boilers come on. So, um, you know, we feel like uh, that's pretty good for a system that's not charged yet. So, so well, it sounds like it's it's largely or or completely an in-house effort uh, that operates the building. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. BU operates all of its buildings. Um and, uh, you know, we have, there has been some new hires. We have a, you know, a building engineer who's on staff that focuses on that building. And, um, uh, you know, we're, we're still learning, but we're, you know, we feel real good about the first, you know, six months of this. That's really great. I feel like it's a workforce development opportunity, really. I mean, this yeah. is the future of building management, right? You need to have a, a building engineer. You need to have folks who really understand a, a slightly more complicated situation in some ways, right? I, I mean, I, yes. You, your building engineers have to know how to code, and they also need to how you know how to use wrenches and screwdrivers. It, it's a it's a much more complicated world than it was, you know, even ten years ago. I I will say that you know, just to emphasize um, Walt's Walt's comment that we have one person who's dedicated as an engineer to manage this building. He was hired, and this. This is the first time BU's done this. We've hired somebody specifically for this building. They were they started a year and a half ago while the building was still under construction. So they were part of of the process of 
building this building. And now they they own the responsibility of managing it. And I think that's really key. It's not bringing somebody in once the building's turned over, right? It's having somebody really intimately involved with understanding why decisions are made and you know how to address issues as they come up in a much more effective way. I think that's really great. I think it's it's really an opportunity for for people to get into this feeling that they're contributing in some way to a better environment, but through their job as a building manager, a building engineer. I think that's sort of what I see as this future of this workforce is that there's a lot of students out there who want to make an imp- who want to make a difference, who want to have an impact, and who want to do that for good. And but there's a lot of different ways to do that, and it's nice to see some of these unique job opportunities where it's like, well, you are actually moving forward in a very energy efficient building. You're you're part of the facilities management and you're making it happen. So it's a, it's a nice little side <laughs> side benefit of having a cool new building like this. So I guess, um, Ed, I don't know, do you have anything you want to wrap up with? How do you how do you operate and maintain it was my was my closer. Your closer. Um, well, I would love to know for both Walt and Dennis, if there's a favorite place that you have within the building, where do you like to sit and watch the world go by? Or where do you like, what hallway do you like to walk down or view do you like to to, to enjoy? (laughs) Well, why don't you go first? I can't say I'm surprised by this, but I'm just reassured that this building is indeed extremely special just by being in the second floor, looking down on the sit step and seeing the use of it by the students. The response to this building has been um, overwhelming. And when you're in the middle of the building with the butterfly staircase and the sit step, and you see all of these public spaces that are attracting students to them and the collaboration spaces uh, that exist in this building are really second to none. The We did not get into this in this podcast because uh, this was really more about the sustainability features of the building. But the design, what really uh, won the design, the competition for KPMB uh, back in the early days, prior to us even thinking about this building being the most sustainable building in all of Boston, was how it was going to function from within. You know, there are no corner offices. All the corners are either collaboration spaces, uh, conference rooms, classrooms. They're places where people want to go and gather. There's five, uh, 50,100 square feet of, of whiteboard in this building. And that's not counting what's in the faculty offices uh, because it's all about getting students to want to come and and work together and collaborate. Um, It's a very flexible building. Uh, It's very practical uh, in that regard. there's the offices all have glass walls to them and the light penetrates all the way through to the core. We we had high expectations for its functionality and for its attractiveness to the students, but it has exceeded those expectations 10 times over. And and where when you're in the core of the building and you're in down on that second floor and you're looking down and you're seeing all these uh, uh, public spaces uh, consumed by students, you know, that's where I really feel like uh, this building is accomplishing what it needs. Because ultimately, as much as we love the sustainability features of the building, if the building doesn't work for the program, then it's a failure. And as far as I can see, the building is a great success. You're absolutely right to point out that there's an entirely other huge focus that this building needs to have, which is it needs to function for the students, the faculty, the staff in the best way possible. So I'm so glad you pointed that out because clearly that's a huge 
that's that's the reason it's here, right? Is to support computing and data science. So exactly. Dennis, what is what is your favorite spot or your reflections? I'm totally in alignment with what Walt said. There's nothing more exciting in this building than being on the second floor looking down to that sit step or being on the sit step, hanging out on the sit step if you can find a space. It's it's just it was amazing when this building was open, how just filled that first and second floor were with students. And fact I heard twice faculty say, Where did all these students come from? I mean, it, it's open to the BU community, right? So there's yes. students that are may or may not be taking courses at the Center for Computing and Data Sciences, and they're enjoying that space as much as anybody. Uh, and in the wintertime, you've got that sun coming in on the south facade onto that sit step, and it is just a really nice place to hang out on a cold winter day. Well, that's great. Do you think the next building that BU builds will um, follow this kind of standard? We'll see. I mean, every building is different, right? And we do have other buildings that are in the works, and we'll see where they, they come out. But, um, you know, certainly we've set a high bar, and uh, we'll do our best to meet that. And I, see, I, 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 I think this is setting an, a new san, a standard and a higher expectation for the end results. I, I can tell you, the weekend after this building opened, uh, I looked onto the security cameras, and I took a picture of the sit step. And it was 2.30 on a Sunday afternoon, and every single seat on that sit step was uh, uh, was taken up. And I, I sent a picture of it to our provost and our provost responded to me and said, you know, this is what our library needs to be like, you know, and we're in the process of, you know, planning and programming some changes to our library. And and I think a lot of the design features and the collaboration spaces, it's a place students want to go, you know, to study on their own or to meet their friends and study with them, um, socialize or for academic purposes, it's where they want to be. And, um, you know, BU needs more spaces like that. And I think this helps illustrate, uh, you know, a, a type of space and a type of design that truly works. Well, that's great. Thank you both for being here, Dennis and Walt, and thanks, Ed, for joining as well and asking some great questions. I do feel a little sad, RIP Burger King, but they can all go up there <laughs> to find some food at the dining hall or somewhere. Or there are other places they can go. We have an excellent dining facility in the building. Right, so. right. Well, then they have an alternative, so they'll have to <laughs> just, just handle it. But um, yes, I, thank you so much for joining today. And um, really, congratulations to you, the BU team, but also to the full project team. Again, if you're interested in learning more about the project, there will be links in the show notes for you. And um Really appreciate you guys spending your time with me for the last little bit. Thanks very much. Thanks Thank for having us. Thank you. I hope you got a lot out of this very first episode. Pushing the boundary of what's possible is really what's going to move us toward a fossil fuel-free future. And the BU building really sets the tone for development in Boston. And I think it gives a path forward for developers that they can mirror and improve upon. So it's a great discussion today. I'll be diving into the EB Award winners for the first five episodes of the podcast. We're going to publish weekly on Mondays. And then after that, we'll go to an every other week structure. You'll find links from the discussion in the show notes, as well as a link back to the EBC website. We are a brand new little podcast on the scene. So please uh, rate, leave a comment, hit the like button, whatever it is on whatever platform you're listening on. We'd love to hear from you. Myself and my staff, our team, will all be reading them and taking them to heart as we put on more episodes. So please let us know who you'd like to hear from or what you'd like to hear about. 
Listen in next week. We'll be discussing the life and career of Paul Locke. He's a retired leader in the Waste Site Cleanup Division at the Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection. It was a really great conversation with somebody who's had a big, big impact on the Massachusetts environmental professionals. We had some of his peers uh, talk with me and learn a little bit more about his career path, his past, some of the interesting things he's done. So looking forward to it and I'll see you next week. Energy Environment Economy is a production of the Environmental Business Council of New England. Thank you to EBC Administrative Coordinator Stephanie Sakar for editing the episode and managing the branding and marketing, and to Ed Ayanada, EBC board member, for joining me on this episode as co-host. Music is Only Forward by Roman Senec Music 2023.